chapter 26, The Science of Kriya Yoga. The science of Kriya Yoga, mentioned so often in these pages, became widely known in modern India through the instrumentality of Lahiri Mahashaya, my guru's guru. The Sanskrit root of Kriya is Kri, to do, to act, and react. The same root is found in the word Karma, the natural principle of cause and effect. Kriya Yoga is thus union, yoga, with the infinite through a certain action or rite. A yogi who faithfully follows its technique is gradually freed from karma or the universal chain of causation. So first, we're just tuning into what the word Kriya means because today there are a lot of Kriyas out there. Uh, every, in fact, any technique that has to do a little bit with true life force control tends to be called a Kriya. And uh, rightly so because the name Kriya is just, it's a very generic thing. It has only to do with the idea that it's an action, but it's a very specific action. A, it's an inward action primarily. Where does Kriya compare to Karma? Karma is of course the law of causality and effect. So with Karma, we're constantly creating more and more causes and effects. Causes and effects. And Kriya, you can say, is the opposite side of Karma, which neutralizes and undoes causes and effects, causes and effects. Because we live in a world of duality, if karma exists, obviously something like Kriya needs to exist anything. That which man has done, as Sri Yukteswar says, he can undo. And Kriya is the process of undoing, but undoing it internally, where the karma itself is lodged. Because there are two ways you can undo a karma. If I've been mean to Narayani, I can undo that karma by being overtly nice to her. Doesn't mean that that meanness that I have put out isn't going to find its way back to me. It will. But if from now on I put out a lot of kindness, the vibration of that meanness inside me will have diminished to the point that finally when it returns back to me, it will return not with the same ferocity and intensity with which I might have sent it out. So that's one way and that's why living a good outward life, a noble life is so important. The problem being, <laughs> we're creating karma after karma after karma after karma with every thought, with every movement, with every intention, with every word, with every action. It's just, and it's not just now, it's the accumulation. So what's this process? How are we going to work on all these things that we have no idea about lodged very much inside us. The universe has kept account. It knows your ledger perfectly, knows exactly what you need when you need it. And here's this process that will help us overcome that internally. So we don't have to live lifetime after lifetime hoping that we are now finally in alignment with the right way to live. Because even if I'm kind, unfortunately, I'm still unkind. There are still moments when unkindness is a part of me. So it'll take a long time if we were only to take that outward route. Interesting also is the name Kri, that very term Kri is true for Krishna, mm -hmm. is true from originally the name of Christ, yes. which was Christos. So somehow those two names, those two states of consciousnesses are liberating consciousness, that which liberates us from our karma. And that's what both these great masters did in their own lifetimes and continue to do now in our lives. Because of a certain ancient yogic injunction, because of certain ancient yogic injunctions, I cannot give a full explanation of Kriya Yoga in the pages of a book intended for the general public. The actual technique must be learned from a Kriyaban or Kriya Yogi. Here, a broad reference must suffice. When everybody reads this, it's like, ah, oh. especially in today's day and age where information is like so readily available. We are like, kya hai? you know, what's this old stuff? And maybe they're trying to hold power. And so they want us, you know, how we have to, they want us to be controlled. And so they only dish it out at, you know, certain ways. 
But it's very important to recognize the importance of what Yogananda just said. Think of it this way. Would you give a loaded gun just to anybody without that person having been trained as a soldier? I mean, do you want people walking around with guns everywhere? Because what's going to happen if you do give somebody a loaded gun? They're going to either hurt themselves or they can potentially hurt others. Would you give anybody and absolutely everybody, you know, a million dollars? knowing that they have no idea of what to actually do with the money. Will they just spend it on liquor the next day? Will they spend it away on gambling? Will they spend it away in prostitution? I mean, what's the consciousness with which somebody who you're going to give something that you know has value? What would you, with what intention would you give that to just anybody? Similarly, Kriya Yoga has this intrinsic value which is both destructive and constructive, like anything in this universe. The sun's power is both destructive and constructive. It grows, but it also burns. It also destroys. So we have to think about Kriya from a perspective of responsibility. Just as somebody has to be responsible for the weapon they carry, responsible for the money they have and how they use it, responsible for the words that we own and the way that we bring them out into the world, responsible for Kriya. The consciousness of an individual has to be sufficiently clarified before the Kriya technique can be beneficial. Otherwise, it can be detrimental. Just as power in the hands of hungry dictators is a horrible thing. <laughs> Take that power and give it to somebody who is a wonderful human being and that very power uplifts millions. So you have to be very mindful when you come and say, I want this thing out of this, you know, where's my consciousness? How sufficiently am I willing to prepare myself? Am I willing to, like a soldier, go through the training that it requires before the army hands me a loaded gun? My father was a military man. And in the beginning, you work with empty weapons or you work with just wooden pieces because nobody is going to hand you something that can destroy both you or others without knowing who you are. Where is your consciousness? What are your intentions? So it's a very important thing to remember. Don't put out this thought that something like this should just be readily available to anybody because not everybody uses what is given to them in the right way. Not because they don't want to, it's because they're unable to. Kriya Yoga is a simple psychophysiological psycho method by which the human blood is decarbonized and recharged with oxygen. What is a psychophysiological method? That means it is such a method that is both mental and physical. So the mind has to be very deeply involved and of course an outward action is also being created. Now by this line even though it sounds like what <laughs> like super scientific and medical essentially Yogananda is saying it's a very specific kind of breathing technique <laughs> because by which the human blood is decarbonized with every exhalation we decarbonize our body. With every inhalation, we recharge our body with oxygen. But the way that we inhale and exhale, we are not able to powerfully either completely decarbonize ourselves or powerfully inject oxygen in such a concentrated form that, as then Yogananda says, the atoms of this extra oxygen, extra oxygen being the key word, are transmuted into life current to rejuvenate the brain and the spinal centers. Of course, he, he's talking about prana. Now, prana in the physical world, because we are living in a physical world, comes to us through the channel of oxygen, not limited by the channel of oxygen, but certainly participative through it. So when we're inhaling and exhaling, just naturally, what are we doing? We're bringing in prana and we're bringing out any decay that has taken place inside us. And this process constantly continues with the world around. Creation, destruction. Creation, destruction. Rejuvenation, decay. Rejuvenation, decay. So through the Kriya process, we take over this very natural reality to us 
and we increase its power many fold so that the decarbonization is happening on a level that is otherwise unable to be achieved and the oxygenation is happening at a level where the brain and the spinal centers being our chakras are being bombarded and infused with pure prana. By, the stop, by stopping the accumulation of venous blood, the yogi is able to lessen or prevent the decay of tissues. The advanced yogi transmutes his cells into pure energy. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're slowing the aging process as well in this way. So that allows us to use the body and all its facilities to the absolute maximum so that the decay and deterioration of our body does not take place at the regular pace. Elijah, Jesus, Kabir and other prophets were past masters in the use of Kriya or a similar technique by which they caused their bodies to dematerialize at will. Now, you know why Yogananda here uses the example of Elijah, Jesus and Kabir. Maybe you're more familiar with Kabir. Do you know when Kabir died, what do they say in his uh, grave, what they found? They found no body because there was this, um, what's the word, argument. Kabir was loved both amongst the Hindus and the Muslims and of course many others. And so there was this argument, should he be cremated? By the Hindus wanted him to be cremated and the Muslims of course wanted him to be buried. And when they look to where his body was, his body had materialized completely and in its stead, uh, I believe there were rose petals or some flower petals there. Similarly, both for Christ and Elijah, they did not leave their physical body on earth like most of us do. For us, if I have, when I pass away, I think, I imagine, Ariane, you let me know, is, you know, my soul goes but the body remains here. But some of these masters were able to take their body, dematerialize it and ascend with the body. And so these are three examples, Elijah, Christ and Kabir, who did that. Of course, other masters can do that as well. But often they leave their body for the devotees because then that place becomes a hot spot of spiritual power. Kriya is an ancient science. Lahiri Mahashaya received it from his guru, Babaji, who rediscovered and clarified the technique after it had been lost in the Dark Ages. The Kriya Yoga which I am giving to the world through you in this 19th century, Babaji told Lahiri Mahashaya, is a revival of the same science which Krishna gave millenniums ago to Arjuna and which was later known to Patanjali, to Christ, Saint John, Saint Paul and other disciples. So Babaji is establishing already this what I'm giving you, I'm not, this is not something I've made and that is like, oh, you know, here, this should help you. This is an ancient science which has been coming from millenniums. In the Gita, Krishna gives it to Arjuna and we'll read exactly what he says when he gives it to Arjuna. Patanjali talks about it in his Yoga Sutras. Christ practiced Kriya Yoga or a technique very similar as Yogananda just established. And then, of course, he passed it over to his disciples. Kriya Yoga is referred to by Krishna, India's greatest prophet, in the stanza of the Bhagavad Gita, offering inhaling breath into the outgoing breath and offering the outgoing breath into the inhaling breath. The yogi neutralizes both these breaths. He thus releases the life force from the heart and brings it under his control. Of course, in the Gita, it's the pran being offered into the apan, the apan being offered into the pran, thereby neutralizing these two currents. And that's important that we're neutralizing these two currents because these two currents within us represent duality. As long as one current is active, the other is obligated to participate. So if there's an upward flow of energy, there's going to be a downward flow of energy. If there's something that we consider very good, there's going to be several things that we consider bad. If we think this is going to make us happy, there are going to be things that are going to make us sad and so on and so forth. As long as duality persists, we are obligated to experience both sides of it because we can't. 
just as I can't give you a coin with just one side on it. No matter what, I can't give you a note also with just one side on it. The very nature of creation is they're going to have two sides. There is no only one dimension. Everything exists in two or more states of being. So we are obligated to experience that unless we can neutralize the duality in the Ida and the Pingala through these two currents and enter into the Shushumna. And when you do that, this is what Krishna says. When you do that, you release the life force from the heart and you bring it under your control. Now, the heart is an interesting thing. You know, the heart is what? How big? Just no bigger than your fist. But the heart spends so much energy. The heart, our heart, an average human heart beats over 100,000 times a day. That's one lakh times of contracting and expanding, contracting and expanding. It, mm, what's the word? Pumps through the body over 8,000 liters of blood in the course of a day. Can you imagine the amount of energy that takes? I mean, we don't feel that way. We are walking around thinking, you know, I'm just this little guy. But in me, this tiny little motor is just, I mean, it's filling up my water tanks on the you know, top of my house, essentially. And that's what it's doing. In your lifetime, if you were average 70 years, your heart would have contracted and expanded over two and a half billion times. That's a lot of activity. That's a lot of prana trapped in this movement. You see, this is also duality. Boom, boom. Contraction, expansion, contraction, expansion. Once that movement is arrested, it's stopped, then all the prana comes under our control. Yogananda further interprets it by saying, the yogi arrests decay in the body by an addition of life force. So that's what the carbonization and the decarbonization and the oxygenation represents. And arrests the mutations of growth in the body by the apan, which is the eliminating current. Thus neutralizing decay and growth by quietening the heart the yogi learns life control. When we start with the Hong so technique, what is the Hong so technique about? It's about breathlessness. Because breathlessness leads to heartlessness. I guess it's not, not such a word, but the heart slows down to the point that itself, it perhaps or may or ideally would stop altogether. But of course, if you've experienced even a little bit of breathlessness in your Hong so practice, you realize it doesn't last and it's not you don't feel when you go into breathlessness of hongsa what do we feel we feel deeply calm right just like and very expansive but what we should feel when the heart does stop is an immense release of prana and that's what kriya does it first allows us to generate so much prana that when we then enter into the complete stillness of our being and the heart does find rest, that that prana becomes completely released to the yogi to use as he would please. Now, this is where it's important. If somebody else were to use this intense prana, they may use it outwardly in very destructive ways because this is a lot of power. But the yogi takes that prana and unites himself, offers all that prana back to the divine source. That is why Kriya Yoga is given selectively only for this purpose and no other purpose is this technique created. Anything you want to add, Narayani? I'm going on. Narayani, from the very beginning, Narayani said, this yeah, is your chapter. <laughs> it's all this science. This is your class, all <laughs> yours. I'll just support you energetically from here. Nod and agree. <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense. All right, just chime in and jump in. I object. Krishna also relates that it was he in a former incarnation who communicated the indestructible yoga to an ancient illuminato, Vishas, Vis, Vivaswat, who gave it to Manu, the great 
legislator who in turn instructed Ikshvaku, the father of the Indian solar dynasty, warrior dynasty, thus passing from one to another, the royal yoga was guarded by the rishis until the coming of the materialistic ages. So you see how ancient this process is, and you see how it has been passed down, not by <laughs> you know putting it on the internet or writing it in a book, passed down from individual to individual, from guru to disciple. And mostly, if you see over here, it's actually been passed down through royal lineages. That is why Raja Yoga, which is the yoga that contains Kriya in it, which contains the act of meditation, is called the Royal Yoga because it was originally practiced by the Rajarshis, who were the Rajas, who were also rishis because they were enlightened monarchs. And that's the, when somebody, when Swamiji asked Yogananda, what is the best form of, you know, of, what's the word, of governance? You know, is democracy really the best form? And uh, <laughs> uh, Yogananda said, well, democracy works sometimes, but the ideal form is that of an enlightened monarch. Of course, we may not see an enlightened monarch in our time, because this is not the age for enlightened monarchs, but certainly the Satyog and Treta Yuga were the age for that. And that's where all this is coming from. But it's been guarded very closely, it's been passed very consciously. You don't say like, yeah, and Krishna gave it to Vivaswat, and then he gave it to Manu, and then Manu gave it to this, you know, his next door neighbor, and his next door neighbor gave it to his son, and you know, and then ye gaonwala jara tha side se usko bhi de diya. Nobody was just giving it, handing it out. This guy gave it to this guy. Who gave it to this guy? Who gave it to this guy? Very clear, the lineage is constantly maintained by the purity of the technique. And another very important reason for us as Kriya Yogis to be very responsible with our technique, very uplifted by the royal lineage that we are representing, not just through Babaji, but all the way back to Krishna in a previous incarnation as Nara Narayan perhaps, as Vishnu himself perhaps. And as from the very beginning of creation, this technique has been passed down. Then due to priestly secrecy and man's indifference, the sacred knowledge gradually became inaccessible. So during Kali Yuga, primarily in the darker ages, it was being practiced very scarcely, Yogananda said, primarily by the rishis, either deep in the forests or high in the Himalayas, and the technique was no longer outwardly a known reality. Even in the past, even though not everybody had access to it, but people knew of the technique's existence and knew that high, you know, highly advanced disciples could and would receive the technique from their gurus. Kriya Yoga is mentioned twice by the ancient sage Patanjali, the foremost exponent of yoga, who wrote, Kriya Yoga consists of body discipline, mental control, and meditating on Om. Now, one interesting thing about this is, in a certain sense, Kriya Yoga is not an individual technique, even though there is a particular technique called Kriya Yoga. But that's why when, when we practice it, we pra practice it as a path. Because it requires body discipline, where the energization exercises come in, where Mahamudra comes in. There is a certain amount of bodily reality before the asana itself is perfected. It requires mental control, where first the Hong So comes in to help establish perfect concentration. Because if these things aren't already in place, the Kriya technique itself can't do much. Just as if you're not trained, as we said, you know, if I, if I give a differential, you know, equation to a class six student, he can have the differential equation right in front of him. He can see the, you know, it's what dx and dy and what other, whatever stuff that mathematical equation contains. But do you think he can do something with it? No, he can't do anything with it. Similarly, we can't do anything with just a technique. But what we can do is create body discipline, mental discipline, and then meditating on Om, which is where the Om technique comes in. To be able to hear the vibration of Om, hear the sounds of the chakras, that means that you've interiorized enough into the astral body. Now Kriya Yoga can do something for you. From this moment, 
the practice of Kriya becomes truly applicable. Patanjali speaks of God as the actual cosmic sound of Om, heard in deep meditation. Om is the creative word, the sound of the vibratory motor. Even the yoga beginner soon inwardly hears the wondrous sound of Om. Receiving this blissful spiritual encouragement, the devotee becomes assured that he is in actual touch with the divine realms. We just very recently, a couple of days ago, had a Om Technique initiation. And it's always fun, the Om Technique initiation, because, you know, people get into it and already you see somebody says, I hear this, somebody says, I hear that. Because we talk about the different sounds of the chakras. And it's just, you know, like, there you go, you see it. It's not all make-believe. It happens, you hear it. And that's also very important to have that little, as uh, Yogananda puts it, the little spiritual encouragement. Patanjali refers a second time to the life control or Kriya technique thus, liberation can be accomplished by that pranayama which is attained by disjoining the course of inspiration and expiration. Again, once again, neutralizing these two dual currents in our being. Saint Paul knew Kriya Yoga. Saint Paul was uh, not an apostle, I don't know if you know the story of Christ enough, but wasn't an apostle, which means he wasn't a direct disciple of Christ, but he was a later disciple after Christ had passed away. And he has a very another interesting story because at first, St. Paul was one of the most ardent enemies of Christ. So he would go from city to city, town to town, dissuading people to follow the teachings of Christ and having those who follow the teachings of Christ stoned to death. That was his job. He was an official, a government official, going from city to city saying, all right, Iskomaro, 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 because these people are heretics for following this false prophet called Christ. Now, on one journey such, from one town to the other, on his horse, he suddenly had this blinding light appear before him, which literally physically blinded him. And then Christ appears to him and says, Paul, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to my disciples and my followers? And from that moment on, Paul became suddenly a convert and became an immediate a disciple of Christ. And it was St. Paul, in fact, interestingly, more than the other original disciples who then helped really expand the scope of Christ's teachings in the world. So what does St. Paul say? Who knew Kriya Yoga, of course, and practiced it. And by which he could switch the life currents to and from the senses. He was therefore able to say, this is from the Bible, a quote, Verily I protest by our rejoicing which I have in Christ. I die daily. Now, of course, this makes no sense to you and me. It's like, yeah, what is he trying to say? Fortunately, Yogananda explains it in the next line by daily withdrawing his bodily life force and by uniting it through yoga union with the rejoicing, which is the eternal bliss of the Christ consciousness, in that felicitous state, in that joyful state, he was consciously aware of being dead to the delusive sensory world of Maya. So you're actually outwardly, I mean, imagine if your heart stops, if a doctor comes to you, Yogananda, when he was in America, would sometimes, you know, for fun do these demonstrations, he'd say, is there a doctor in the audience in his large, uh, you know, talks? And a doctor would come over and he'd say, okay, now, you know, check my pulse and then check my heartbeat. And he was able to, whether stop his heartbeat, to increase his heartbeat, to have one different pulse in this hand and a different pulse rate in the other hand, just to show the amount of mastery he had over his life control. And so what St. Paul would be able to do, like all Kriya Yogis eventually, at least all masters of Kriya Yoga do, is that they withdraw their life force to the point where outwardly their body feels like it is dead, but then they enter into that rejoicing state of Christ, which is the blissful state of Christ consciousness, or the consciousness of whatever you ascertain, your Guru's consciousness, Krishna's consciousness, Brahman of Satchitananda. 
In the initial states of God contact, which is Sabikalpa Samadhi, the devotee's consciousness merges with cosmic spirit. His life force is withdrawn from the body, which appears dead or motionless and rigid. The yogi is fully aware of his body condition of suspended animation. As he progresses to higher spiritual states, which is Nirvikalpa Samadhi, however, he communes with God without bodily fixation and in his ordinary waking consciousness, even in the midst of exacting worldly duties. What this means is, Savikalpa and Nirvikalpa are the two states of Samadhi. Like when we get there, we'll be able to know what's going on. But Kalpa means time. So Savikalpa means that which is controlled by time. Nirvikalpa, which is beyond time, which means that Savikalpa is ki thode time ke liye. So in Savikalpa is when I am in meditation, I experience that complete unity with spirit. But when I step out of meditation, here I am back in my body and you know I have to I have to come back to meditation again and again to be able to withdraw my life force away and enter into a state of samadhi. In nirvikalpa, after having practiced Savikalpa Samadhi for who knows how long, um, in nirvikalpa you forever stay in that blissful state of cosmic union, whether you're walking, whether you're eating, whether you're talking, whether you're sleeping. It just no longer matters because now your samadhi is nirvikalpa, beyond kalp, beyond time. Kriya Yoga is an instrument through which human evolution can be quickened, Sri Yukteswar explained to his students. The ancient yogis discovered that the secret of cosmic consciousness is intimately linked with breath mastery. This is India's unique and deathless contribution to the world's treasury of knowledge. The life force, which is ordinarily absorbed in maintaining the heart pump, must be freed for higher activities by a method of calming and stilling the ceaseless demands of the breath. We've, of course, gone over this. We start this process through the Hongso technique, but then the Kriya technique helps kind of accelerate this process for us. The Kriya Yogi mentally directs his life energy to revolve upward and downward around the six spinal centers, which is the medullary, the cervical, the dorsal, the lumbar, the sacral, and the coccygeal plexus. So he's talking about the chakras, he's giving them their kind of medical terms which correspond to the 12 astral signs of the zodiac, the symbolic cosmic man. One half minute of revolution of energy around the sensitive spinal cord of man affects subtle progress in his evolution. That half minute of Kriya equals one year of natural spiritual unfoldment. This is one of those key sentences in this chapter. One Kriya equals one year of natural spiritual unfoldment. So you've got two options here. Either you live a year out, and in that year, karma will come, lessons will come, issues will come, things will happen, you will learn, you will grow. You know, hopefully, all that karma that requires a year for us to... You know, at the end of a year, I think all of us can say, we're a little bit wiser, we're a little bit more experienced, we're, we're a little bit more and better equipped perhaps to handle similar situations. I think a majority of us can rightfully say that. So you can either do that whole year or you can do a half a minute of a Kriya practice. Now I know that sounds like, what? You know, one of those crazy claims. But Yogananda explains why that is true. And why that's true, and this is when we were chanting the a song before, which was Pranayam, you know, is the cosmic world. And this is what the cosmic man is. He says, the symbolic cosmic man lives within our spine. Each of our chakras, which are six in total, because the Sahasrara is not concerned here, because it in fact does not live within the human body. So the six chakras that do, up till the point between the eyebrows, in the Shushumna, these six are intersected with the Ida and the Pingla 
on either side. Where the ida passes through the chakras, it creates what's called the positive pole or the positive node of the chakra. Where the pingala intersects with it on the downward journey, it creates the negative pole. So every chakra has duality inside it as well, because the same chakra has positive qualities, but that also has negative qualities, just as you can have a lot of energy and self-control, but that energy and self-control can very easily become anger, stubbornness, irritation, frustration. So it goes both ways. And these places where they intersect actually correlate to the zodiac signs. You get six in total, so you get 12 zodiac signs. And each of the chakras themselves represent the celestial bodies of the planets. So you've got Saturn, you've got Jupiter, you've got, um, where are we, Mars, Mars, you've got Venus, you've got Mercury, you've got the Moon, you've got the Sun, and then you've got Rahu Ketu as the Ira and the Pingala itself. So essentially when mankind discovered astrology and said, oh, you know, these planets and outside of us really affect us, what they actually recognized was that the planets reflect the internal makeup of our own chakras and our astral body. And because man is a mirror for the macrocosm, in order to understand the microcosm, we can look to the macrocosm and say, ah, that is why an astrological chart is not telling you how Saturn influences you and how Mercury influences you. It's telling you how Saturn, which is your Mooladhar, influences you. Jupiter, which is your Swadhisthan, influences you. Which particular area was it in? Which zodiac is it in? And so what's happening here is really the blueprint of the moment that the soul is born. So in order to understand our chakras and the karma we've brought in this life, we look there because the moment I was born, that same reflection exists now inside me. And that's the power of astrology, as we went through even in the previous chapters of outwitting the stars. Now, let's look at the process of what a year of evolution looks like on planet Earth. Planet Earth is us, represents our own human body. So the human body has to go through a whole year and the Earth has to revolve entirely around the sun once. That becomes one year. When we're practicing Kriya, we take that same life force and energy and we revolve it once around the sun, passing through all the zodiac and bringing it back. And that affects internally one year of a spiritual life lived. The same way you would have lived it outwardly. So that's where Kriya comes into being. That's why it is as powerful as it is. Because we're living and neutralizing years of karma internally by following the same process the earth follows outwardly. A little crazy, you know, a little bit, it'll take a little while to, for this stuff to settle in, but it helps to see what these, uh, you know, declarations truly mean. That they're not just, you know, I've said one Kriya equals this, but it's not that they're just saying this. They're helping us understand why that is true. The astral system of a human being with six, which is 12 bipolarity, as we just talked about, inner constellations revolving around the sun of the omniscient spiritual eye is interrelated with the physical sun and the 12 zodiacal signs. All men are thus affected by an inner and outer universe. The ancient rishis discovered that man's earthly and heavenly environment in 12-year cycles push him forward on his natural path. So these 12-year cycles represent Jupiter's revolution around the sun. It takes 12 years for Jupiter to make one entire revolution. And if you look at our own lives, generally, 12, at every stage of 12, we make significant shifts in our own consciousness. The first comes at the stage of puberty, where we shift from being a child to now being an adolescent. The second comes at 24, where we've ended all our, you know, um, studies and the knowledge and receiving as much information about the world. And now we become an adult where we put this information and this knowledge into practice. So on and so forth at 36, at 48. And if you look at your life a little bit, you'll see, oh yeah, there was a shift. A lot of us 
tend to come around the age of 24 onto the spiritual path. Narayani and I was true as well. A few years early, of course, it's not, you know, it's not like bang on dot. And the, even the revolutions around the sun sometimes are slightly longer, sometimes are slightly shorter. It all depends exactly on your chart, what is reflected. But that's what's happening and that's why a Kriya Yogi also does his Kriyas in groups of 12. And we don't do them just randomly. We'll either do 12 Kriyas, we'll do 24 Kriyas, or we'll do 36 Kriyas. Because that one revolution of 12 affects change enough. If I just do two or three Kriyas, then I'm not doing that full cycle of Jupiter inside me. Jupiter represents the Guru in our charts, in the celestial worlds. And so the Guru is responsible for that spiritual cycle of evolution. The scriptures aver that man requires a million years of normal, diseaseless evolution to perfect his human brain sufficiently to express cosmic consciousness. So in the scriptures it says, I mean, I love how mathematical these things are like, man requires one million years of normal, you know, what's normal is a big, that's a huge definition to figure out, diseaseless evolution to perfect his human brain sufficiently to express cosmic consciousness. I'm going to skip an entire page forward. This is 236 because Yogananda expands a little bit more on this. We'll come to it, of course, but we might as well go into it right now. This is the third paragraph. Thus he removes himself from studied, let's move beyond that, by circuitous means as given by proper food, sunlight and harmonious thoughts. It takes a million years to achieve that goal. So this is the definition of normal diseaseless evolution with proper food, sunlight and harmonious thoughts. Now why don't we evolve in a million years, why doesn't our brain just be able to receive cosmic consciousness directly, which it could, because we don't live harmonious lives, we don't eat proper food, we don't receive adequate sunlight, and we definitely don't live diseaseless lives. And disease doesn't mean of the body, disease of all three bodies, physical disease, mental disease, what is mental disease? Anger is a disease. You know, judgment is a disease, criticism is a disease, negativity is a disease, dis-ease, anything that puts you out of ease is a disease. So we need to either live one million years of perfect harmonious living, which I mean, can get a little hard, I don't know, <laughs> or we do something else to quicken the process and that is why when Swamiji once asked Yogananda, you know, when Yogananda was explaining the process of consciousness, he says, yeah, from mineral, it takes these many, you know, million uh, years or lives or whatever to get to the plant. And then it takes a certain million lives to get to the animal kingdom and then the animal kingdom. But he says, but this process is very automatic. It's just happening because there is not enough egoic identification. So there's a natural automatic upward evolution towards hum the human uh, incarnation and then he yes so the, he said it takes anywhere between five to eight million lives if I'm correct and then Swamiji says and what about <laughs> once you get to the human <laughs> and then you're gonna say well then it can be anything because now free will comes into being you can be free to live harmoniously and you can do it in a million years <laughs> Or, like most of us, we want to express our freedom in every possible way. I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat. I'm going to act however I want to act. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to have whatever desire I want to have. And so on and so forth. And so those numbers just multiply and multiply. So that million years can become billions of years by our own volition. Which is apparently God's greatest gift to us. He says, well, you do it in your own way. We wish he didn't give us this gift. We wish he had just kept us like robots and automatons. Give it jaldi khatam karo is time ko. But here we are with this beautiful gift. Where are we now? We're going back to 234, continuing our 1000 kriyas practiced in 8 hours gives the yogi in one day 
the equivalent of 1000 years of natural evolution. So potentially you could do 1000 kriyas in one day, take you around eight hours <laughs> and you can have 1000 years of a life lived in that day. Sounds, sounds very much like something we should do. 365,000 years of evolution in one year. So if you continue that process, in one year you could have evolved to 365,000 years. In three years, a Kriya Yogi can thus accomplish by intelligent self-effort the same result which nature brings to pass in a million years. So this is Yogananda's flawless mathematics. Wait, three, when we first read this, three years, that's all it's going to take. Shut up. Let's do this. I'm willing to put in three years. And of course, here we are 12 years later and we're still trying to figure out. Then of course, he, this is his, you know, this is the ideal scenario he's putting out there. Then he goes on to say, the Kriya shortcut, of course, as he puts it, can be taken only by deeply developed yogis. Even to be able to do a thousand Kriyas in the day is almost impossible to a certain degree in two ways. Either you will not do them well enough, which is, tends to happen even with most of our 12 to 108 Kriyas. You won't do them as powerfully, as clearly, as concretely as a Kriya should be done. And or you do them too much and you end up perhaps burning your nervous system because your nerves can't handle that much electric power flowing through them. So either way, for the majority of us, unless you are Ram Gopal Mazumdar <laughs> meditating 20 to 22 hours every day, maybe we're not going to achieve the thousand Kriyas yet. Somebody out there over here, I'm sure perhaps after incarnations, you can. So that's important also to realize that, okay, it's for deeply developed yogis, but doesn't mean that we can't develop ourselves into those yogis. With guidance of a guru, such yogis have carefully prepared their bodies and brains to receive the power created by intensive practice. That's the important part here. Just as Yogananda would say, you know, when um, a disciple said to him to give him, you know, the bliss that Yogananda was experiencing and Yogananda said, the cup cannot hold the ocean. Similarly, our bodies cannot hold that kind of power. And so we have to prepare first the body, the nervous system, the brain, and the spine. And everything we do on the path of Kriya is really about these four things, Prepa preparing the body, the nervous system, the brain, the spine. And we prepare them not just through our practices, we prepare them, this is a wonderful time to perhaps end, Narayani. Will you say something? <laughs> I feel like I've gone on and on and no, on and on. you did a fantastic class, really. Nothing to add. It was fantastic. I was just thinking that, so fascinating that Master chose to speak about Kriya Yoga pretty much from the middle of the book onwards. He didn't start the book with Kriya Yoga. In mm. fact, he started with miracles, with so many other subjects, almost like testing us <laughs> how far you will go how ready you are going to become to receive this kind of information and and i love he perhaps thoughtfully chose it or felt inspired to do it in this way only until you have kind of accepted and gone through all these experiences and the guru on, disciple and the guru disciple of course i was going to go to that the guru disciple relationship only then I will explain you a little bit <laughs> what Kriya can do for you. And I was thinking while reading all these numbers and how exciting it is the very thought like, wow, in three years I can become a master. I can just work with all my karma. But for Kriya to really have its full power, its full effect, you need to behave appropriately when you are not doing your Kriyas. Mm. Because people have a tendency to think that if I'm doing Kriya, I mean, it's not enough become a Kriya Yogi. Only your Kriya will be effective 
only it will change you according how you behave when you are not practicing your Kriya. So you see, you have to implement both and you have to give equal importance to your Kriya practice and then what you do when you are not practicing your Kriya. Because Kriya will never be enough excuse to justify your wrong behaviors, your wrong judgments, your, you know, your inability to develop compassion when you need, your inability you know, to be generous when, when you can be generous. So don't underestimate your actions throughout the day because it requires a certain refinement of consciousness. And I think this is why before it was passed, you know, in that regal lineage and from guru disciple, because it requires a sensitivity, it requires certain awareness to then use and implement the power of your Kriya in your daily life, interacting with your fellow man. So yes, be encouraged uh, and know that you can achieve great results. You can evolve spiritually so much once you have Kriya. But don't forget <laughs> that what you will do when you are not practicing Kriya will really determine the success of your Kriya itself. So, so let's see if maybe next week we can give more emphasis on how we apply daily what we have gained through our Kriya practice, but manifest that outwardly in every interaction, every thought, and we put the same amount of willpower in our behavior, mm. outward behavior. It reminds me of that thing Swami said, every rude thought contracts your Kundalini further mm. and, it bur and she burrows deeper in below your Muladhar. So when you're trying to work with these energies, they are very sensitive to your actions, to your thoughts, to your intentions, and don't think that you will be able to coax them through technique alone. So yeah, very and important if, yeah, balance. In fact, uh, sometimes it has happened that one of the reasons why we can really go deep in our meditations, in our Kriya practice, or we go through periods of dryness, perhaps it's important for us to check how are we behaving of there is a specific tendency that we are not practicing enough outwardly and it's creating a block in our Kriya practice. So um, try to bring both concepts together so one can help the other and we will feel that we are actually, you know, in sync with both actions, the inner action through Kriya Yoga and the outer action, which sometimes is through our Karma Yoga and our ability to interact with the world around us. Great, a great thought to leave this really technical <laughs> chapter with. All right, everybody, God bless you all. I hope each of you 